This is Nick Corpon, author of Old Ghosts. You should listen to Book Podcast. Welcome to Book, to where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livius Nedden. This week, the debut novel from Dark House Press, which is run by booked friend Richard Thomas, The New Black. Um, we don't actually have a uh, author bio, because we're not going to talk about Richard any more than we already have. But we do have this <laughs> the synopsis for The New Black. The New Black is a collection of 20 neo-noir stories exemplifying the best authors currently writing in this dark subgenre, a mixture of horror, crime, fantasy, science fiction, magical realism, and the grotesque, all with a literary bent. These stories are the future of genre-bending fiction. That's a, uh, that's a big claim to make. Yeah, um... You know, though, I think that for, for us, I have to say, and this is this is no surprise, but we, we have been involved and have reviewed and or talked about a, quite a number of these authors. So I think for people who like darker fiction, which you and I fit that category pretty well, I think that uh, some of these people are going to be the future of this genre. I mean, I, I, I believe that. Definitely. I was just trying to give Richard a little poke right at the beginning. Making big claims. <laughs> there, there, may, there may be more poking um, to come. I'm waiting for you to jump on the, the neo-noir uh, subgenre. I'll tell you what. Um, I was thinking about this today because I was reading the synopsis and it's just throwing out words left and right. Magical realism, grotesque, neo-noir. And I started getting into my big like, like frothing fervor about genre titling and who it means anything to and why and then i just decided just to back off and um not think too much about it so i'm actually for the sake of this review i'm gonna let the whole genre naming thing go that's mighty big of you rob i know it's a difficult decision but (laughs) you know Oh, we're such judgmental pricks, like all the time. It's terrible. It's terrible what we do. And only a small portion of it ever makes it to the actual podcast. Rob has to edit out a whole bunch of judgmental shit every week. So Yeah, this is this is like um this is with the faucet turned all the way down. This is at a drip of our just hate filled rants. <laughs> Alright, let's get let's get into the actual book. So, um this is very timely. Uh, a, the book is coming out today, uh, Tuesday, the 13th of May. I believe today is the actual release date. That's hopefully when this is going to be posted. Yep. Um, and talk about Timely, the foreword by Laird Barron, who we reviewed here sometime last year, I think. It's been about a year. Mm-hmm. The just won. Yes, the, for the croning. Just won a Bram Stoker Award. That's pretty dope. Yeah, so um, his book, his collection, The Beautiful Thing That Awaits Us All, won the uh, collection category, which is pretty cool, only because um, the book anthology did not make it through the uh, through the nomination process for a Stoker Award, so it's cool that Laird Barron won. Because other than that, he would have had no shot. Yeah, and, and now, you know, now that you said that, I didn't even think about that, but there's another. They recently announced the list of uh, nominees for Shirley Jackson Awards, and we, we didn't make it on that list either. These uh these lists are all terrible and have now zero value now that you told me that. I know. It's kinda well, you know what though? Anthology of the Year, this is horror, two thousand thirteen. I do think though, and just to be fair, that we may have been excluded because Paul Tremblay is on the board of the Shirley Jackson Awards. Yeah, because his a... book was in anthology, I think I think we maybe just didn't qualify based on that. Because of a potential bias? That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yep. Not potential, for sure biased. Definite bias. <laughs> <laughs> Definite bias. Yeah. There's, I mean, because there's really no way he would not have pushed it through to, to be the, the winner. Now, I'm not sure who the judges for the Shirley Jackson Awards are, but you have to imagine that Tremblay has, like, drunken Snapchats, like, screenshotted on his <laughs> phone from them and stuff, that he can make some shit happen. Absolutely. He seems like that type. He's just going to he's gonna get what he wants, no matter what it takes. <laughs> We met Tremblay in Boston. Like you couldn't, you couldn't ask for a nicer, cooler guy. <laughs> yeah, he was a super cool guy. So we're probably for anybody who doesn't understand that we're just constantly sarcastic. He's not. He's not the breaking knees type of fella. No, that's me. That's you. That's definitely yeah. yeah that's you. But uh, we're not here to talk about Paul. Well, 
Paul Tremblay is in the new black, so I guess that's the connection to the uh, the meat of this uh, episode. It's all one big circle. Anyway, congratulations to Laird Barron who kicks this off with a uh, with like a multi part introduction. There's like chapter numbers for his introduction. <laughs> I've never seen scene breaks in in a fo- in is it a forward or an introduction? That is uh, the forward. Forward. Yep. So, um, but very cool of Laird Barron to you know talk a little bit about the the neo noir scene. Can I make a weird connection? Sure. All right. So. Laird Barron, as far as I'm aware, he has an eye patch, right? Uh, that is correct, yes. So, so I'm assuming that he's visu- visual, vision, visually challenged? Vision, um, that vision. or just really fucking cool and or, get away with wearing an eye patch. <laughs> or a badass, yeah. yeah. Now, uh, the connection I'm making, the, the title of his forward is Eye of the Raven, right? Yep. Now, our guy, Josh Deach, one of our favorite authors, a longtime friend of the podcast, he's got a cat named Raven, right? He does. With one eye. That's pretty goddamn crazy. What are the odds? (laughs) (laughs) I can't even, I can't begin to calculate what the odds are on that. But nice, nice catch there. That's how my mind works. It's always making weird connections between things that don't have anything to do with each other. (laughs) Pretty much. All right. <laughs> this is so, going to be a rager yeah. of an episode. Oh, it's going to be something. <laughs> You'd think we were drinking. You haven't been drinking, have you? Uh, not today. Yeah, me neither. So um, so from there, we go on to a, um introduction by Richard Thomas, um, where he talks a lot about why he decided to, to put this together and, and how he came to know of some of these writers and, and his involvement with them in various aspects and projects and on other presses and stuff and then we get into boom what's the first thing we get into rob Stephen graham jones yep just like everything else on this podcast it all comes down to some Stephen graham jones that's right um, now before we get into the the meat of the, what the stories are anybody who hasn't uh heard us uh review a collection before this is pretty much the format we go for we each have chosen three notable stories our top three notable stories and uh essentially what we're going to do is we're going to go back and forth each of us talking about um one of our notable stories and then you know kind of the other person throwing in their thoughts as well so you're going to get the top six notable stories of the 20 that are listed in this book and then we might throw in some random comments about other stories as well Let's do that thing like uh, like all the big TV shows do and, and, and talk about something that's going to come up towards the end of the review. Um, Rob and I have, again, once again, agreed on an anthology winner. That's right. That's another... Um, I think it's one of the best things about reading collections is sitting back and saying, well, this is the one that I think takes the cake. I've always enjoyed that. Yep. So that's coming up uh, at the end of this review. All right, but first I want to talk about... I'm taking the reins on this one. My first story, my first notable story, is actually going to be the anthology opener, and that's something that, you know, typically um, you can expect to see some of the better stuff at the front and back. You know, the bookends tend to be the, the heavier hitters, and um, this is no exception. Stephen Graham Jones, his story, Father, Son, Holy Rabbit... Uh, is essentially about a man and his son who um, get lost in a blizzard in the in the wilderness and are forced to sur- uh, try and survive over the course of several days um, with the assistance of what appears to be uh, a mystical, uh, somewhat weird, supernatural rabbit. <laughs> is that what you got out of that story? Because I don't... I don't okay, Wait. It's just... Wait, what did you get out of it? <laughs> I'm getting your, your spot on. It's just such a crazy kind of premise for a story. I've heard, um, I'd heard of this story in numerous places as just being just a terrific, terrific story. And quite honestly, before we started doing this podcast, I hadn't read very much of uh, Stephen Graham Jones' work. But this one comes up quite a bit um, in conversation with people. And yeah, this is um, probably one of the craziest stories in the anthology although it it, it doesn't necessarily um lend itself to the same kind of i don't know magical properties as some of the other stories do but but definitely one of the most batshit crazy stories um in in this anthology and and probably in many others too 
Yeah, and then the tradition of Stephen Graham Jones just really terrifically executed with the the twist that comes at the end of the story. Um, I got so bought into like the horror and the the panic of what was going on between you know in this situation that you while you should have seen the twist coming, um, it's still such a surprise when it happens. It's a really good story. Indeed. Um, since Rob talked about bookends, I'm going to go ahead and uh, jump in with my uh, my first selection for notable story, a standout story in this book, and I'm going to go all the way to the other end. Another story I've heard a lot about over the last three years that we've been doing this podcast, Wind Eye by Brian Evanson, um, also former guest of Booked. Um, oh, what to say about this? It's about a kid who um, is kind of reminiscing about his youth. Or I'm sorry, it's about an adult who's reminiscing about his youth when he was a kid and uh, the relationship he had with his sister and this very strange window um, in their home that he refers to, and, and this is all explained in the story, refers to as a, a wind eye, which is the, the name of the story. Yeah, this story, um, if you ask me, is probably... Uh, top top build for the creepiest um, and you know story in the book. There's a couple that are pretty creepy. This one, this one really kind of gives you the shivers. Yeah, I, very very well done. Um, e- even the reveal. It's a very short story. I have to imagine it's. Well, you read the print version, right, Rob? Yeah, in print, I think it's five, maybe six pages. It's really it's pretty yeah. tight. That's what I was gonna guess at, and and I'm not gonna give anything away here. I don't think, but it's about a kid who's. Uh, <laughs> his sister goes missing and you know he's kind of analyzing this from from the standpoint of being an adult and it's uh rob's right it's very very creepy it definitely has a a little more of the supernatural feel to it than a lot of these other stories um although creepiest i won't say it's the scariest i think there's one that's scarier in in this book (laughs) definitely um and that's going to be my next one on my list one of my three is story called Dollhouse by booked alum Craig Walwork, a guy we've had on the podcast, we've talked about a lot, and is just like one of the coolest guys we know. Uh, his story Dollhouse essentially is about a little girl who finds in her attic a dollhouse that pretty much matches exactly the layout of the house that her and her parents live in. And um, as she interacts with it over the course of several days creepy things start happening and it's really really scary um so it's definitely another kind of in the same vein of of um the wind eye story where there's just like powers beyond your control and you just have to like witness this thing happening is pretty cool yeah, I agree. Easily the scariest story in the bunch. Probably one of the scariest short stories I've read in it, well, in recent memory. I can't think of anything I've read that was that was more kind of uh, scary in that creeping kind of dread factor. Um, just fantastically done. Um, by the way, you said Craig Walwork's one of the coolest uh, guys we know. It's the accent, dude. That's like 60% of his cool. If he sounded like us, he wouldn't be anywhere near his cool. I need you to do the... Uh... I need you to do the voice, Livius. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> I don't... Three words. God damn, God damn it. I don't think I can. <laughs> I, I can't do it. See, you put me on the spot and I can't I, do it. I'm just going to find the episode and cut it in. Well, there you go. Right. <laughs> it's just going to sound like I'm... <laughs> like I'm <laughs> mentally challenged just saying the same thing over and over again. Exactly. <laughs> it is the accent. I agree with you. <laughs> so... I mean, just think about how much cooler we'd sound if we could pull off British accents. Oh, man. Yeah, instead of just, like, really poorly replicating British accents. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, moving on to my next story and the first story, apparently, that's by somebody. So here's all. <laughs> we were kind of picking stories and going back and forth, and it was... Uh, we've had involvement with a lot of the people in this book, um, and, and it's the kind of stuff we love, so there's no surprise there. But this one, this one's very new to us. Although we've heard um, Richard saying Roxanne Gay's uh, praises for years now. Every time you talk to the guy, uh, he, he mentions, he's like, have you ever read any Roxanne Gay? And I go, no, no, I haven't. Still haven't, Richard. And he's like, ah, oh, you got to read Roxanne Gay. <laughs> well, I did. I read some Roxanne Gay. And this is my, uh, my second standout story um, in this book. Uh, it's called How. 
the 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 tricky part about being in a collection where you have like the supernatural and the magical realism and all the weird stuff is that sometimes the the everyday stories tend to get a little buried under that. So, you know, we talked about two really creepy stories. We talked about this batshit crazy story about surviving in the wilderness. You know, here's a story that's just about two twin sisters living a shitty life in the Midwest like a lot of us do. Um, And, you know, it follows the one sister and she's in a shitty marriage and she has to take care of her dad who, you know, was an asshole to him when they were kids. And there's all this other stuff. She works at a crappy job where her boss, like, comes on to her and stuff and... You know, story-wise, it's a good story, but man, I just probably the best written, in my opinion, line-by-line story in this whole collection. Yeah, I'll agree. I like this story. Um, and just like Livius, this is my first exposure to Roxanne Gay, except for at AWP in Seattle when I was at the book uh, fair, and a bunch of people were talking to her, and I was standing <laughs> exposed, in front of the table. You exposed yourself to her there? <laughs> <laughs> no, not to her. Um, okay. Uh, no, I just happened to be standing at the table talking to some other people while she was talking to people I was with. So uh, I did not meet Roxanne Gay, but I was within feet of her while she was talking to people I knew. Um, anyway, back to the story. I thought the story was really cool. Um, and it was a little bit of an interesting format because the scene breaks were basically uh, punctuated by a sentence starting with the word how. And the name of the story is how. So like how so-and-so did this how this happened to this person like that was kind of the way the scene breaks were broke uh, were um, denoted and I thought it was fine except for the font that gets used in the book I didn't like it all so um, I had to consciously not hold it against Roxanne Gay that the font uh, that was used for these uh, scene breaks was a little bit obtrusive but overall I'll agree with Livius it was a very good story I um I, Richard was kind enough to provide um, paper copies for us, which is awesome, um, as I plan on getting uh, this signed by a bunch of people um, over the course of the next couple of years or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I still went right to the goddamn Kindle for it, so I can't, uh, I can't speak to the fonts. I thumbed through the book uh, when I got it from Richard, and now it's sitting uh, on a shelf that's uh, in another room. So I'll have to take your word on the, uh, on the font selection there. Oh, so where it was... Um... I guess that's an interesting point. I didn't even think about what the ebook was going to look like. Um, how does the is there the uh, the weird page elements like the splattered ink kind of look on it or no? Um, no, but uh, I don't remember how I got this. This didn't. This also came from Richard. I think it was just a Word doc um, uh, made into an EPUB. Oh, gotcha. So it was very so, the basic. None of the elements were. Do you have the no um, no? Yeah, uh, the images at the beginning of the stories. Uh, no. Oh, wow. All right. We'll have to talk about that, too. I, I may actually have to get up and get the book from the other room if we're going to talk about it. <laughs> All right. Seems like an awful lot of work you're putting me through here, buddy. Are we good with Roxanne? I think we're good with Roxanne. She does not have to put on the uh, the red light. Um, uh, I was going to go with Roxanne, Roxanne. Uh, I don't even know. Wait, what's that? It's a rap song from, like, 1984. Oh, <laughs> From when I used to listen to a lot of rap when I was like 12. I was six. <laughs> um, there are images at the beginning of the stories, by the way. I apparently just managed to miss them while I was reading this. <laughs> Excellent. All right, my third story that I want to talk about, my third standout, is going to be His Footsteps Are Made of Soot by Nick Corpon. Um, we've had Nick on the show as a, for interviews. He helped us with our intro to Hard Boiled episode. Um, He's been in you know a bunch of stuff that we've reviewed. He was uh, in the book anthology, so we have a long history with him. And um, for me, at least, his story in this book was a little bit of a departure. He always has kind of some weird, weird elements, but this this was um, it seemed a little bit different than than the usual stuff. He he's in my mind very straight crime, and this was more um, kind of weird and out there. Um, Essentially, there's a there's a guy uh, who works kind of as an assistant to a back alley surgeon, right? Mm-hmm. And um, he's taking care of his mother, who is in a wheelchair, and um, he's he's essentially got a um, kind of a shitty home life. And uh, because of of his his shitty home life and his past, he decides he wants to uh, get rid of some of his memories, and he enlists the help of this back alley surgeon. So. 
uh, a really kind of weird, not straight up crime thing, like I would I usually expect from from Nick, but really well written. And some of the stuff, especially some of the the more intense interactions between the protagonist and his mother, were so emotional that uh, um, for me, it shot it up to uh, to being one of my favorite in the collection really really easily yeah this story has something in common with the the final story that i'm going to talk about in that if i either in a movie or in like a longer form this was one of the stories that i wouldn't have minded you know a 200 page novel um kind of about the the back alley surgeon this guy was helping him out in addition to his home life but like an expanded version of this Mm mm-hmm halfway through the story i was like what however long the story is 20 pages 15 whatever it's too short i already knew it was too short halfway through (laughs) um because i really like the setup and what you know the things that were going on in it so yeah that's that this is definitely one i would love to have seen in a much longer longer um story for sure i agree and i agree with you too that that corpon who um most of the stuff i've read by him is kind of straight up crime um I, i like this it's a little bit of a departure from that Pretty excited to see Fate Av come out from uh, the Exhibit A books coming up. Very, very cool. Yes, I'm, I get the feeling that might be a, uh, a, a, a review here on Booked. Just a feeling. <laughs> All right, and uh, my third and final story. Um, can we just talk about now that this is this is the the one? Go for it. <laughs> Unanimous, unanimously decided here on book to that this is the winner of the anthology by unanimous i mean both rob and i agreed <laughs> matt bell <laughs> matt bell with dredge um it's uh it's about a guy who's had a really weird history um who finds a drowned girl a girl who's been drowned he finds her in the river while he's fishing or lake or wherever he is and um he decides that he's gonna take her home and keep her There's so much that I liked about this story. I just want to say, um, yeah, I, like I said, this I could see this as as a movie uh, or or as a novel. Um, you've got kind of the weird antihero because this guy did just take a dead girl home with him, decide you know that that he needs to keep her around, and there's good reasons for it. You know, there's stuff that comes up in the story. It had a little bit of that brick feel to it, the movie brick. Yeah. Yep. Um, kind of crossed a little bit with kind of maybe a little Simon Meeks without the supernatural powers um, where he's got this dead girl that he feels he kind of owes something to mm-hmm, just sure. just fantastic throughout and again much like I said about Nick's story love would love to read this in a 230 page novel one of the things that I thought was so great about it was um, that the protagonist is a very simple person and it's very obvious that not only is he very limited in many of his capacities, but he's aware of it. So um, you have a person that's disadvantaged by some of the trauma in his past, but just also his weird upbringing. Like, he, he's not a smart person. He's not socially, you know, graceful. And, and pretty much everything's working against him, but he's the guy that we know in the story. And um, so I thought that was really cool because it kind of gave an innocence to all the really weird shit that was happening in the story. Mm-hmm. But then, <laughs> I don't know if I, how much to talk about the story, but, like, he decides, like, the best course of action is to become a detective and try and find the killer. <laughs> I know. It's just awesome. I love <laughs> it. <laughs> that was my favorite twist in it, where he's like, I need to find the killer. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is coming. Like, it was just, like, every single thing that happened was just, like, uh, it was exciting. It was, it was kind of ridiculous how excited I got about uh, you know every new thing I learned in this story. Yeah, again, halfway through, I knew this was going to be my favorite story of the anthology, <laughs> um, and just great, great job to Matt Bell for uh, for for bringing for bringing this story. Um, uh, you know, just putting it in front of us, and again, a second time because this was reprinted somewhere else. I don't know what the original printing of this was, but um, man, Matt Bell, holy crap, dude, love that story. Remember how much we gushed about Mantodea from Warmed and Bound? Oh, that's true. I didn't until you just said that, but yes. Yeah. We we definitely like our Matt Bell. We do. It was Hayden's Fairy Review number 50, uh, published in 2009. Well, there you go. 
And there you have it. The top six stories, or top six standout stories, yeah, as chosen by Booked. Um, Not that there aren't a lot of other very good and very interesting stories in there. Um, uh, Some of them that we've read before, and I think that that almost hurts the stories as far as getting mentioned again, because we're like, ah, we read that two years ago. Um, Yeah, definitely. Craig Clevenger's Act of Contrition we had as our... um, top picks during Warned and Bound, so uh, we've already kind of gushed about that. Loved the story, thought it was great. Thought it was an interesting kind of move from the stuff we'd read from him before, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. But we already told you how great it is, so you can just go back and listen to that episode. Number 37, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, as well as Blue Hawaii by Rebecca Jones Howe, which was uh, in Solar Side's Nova Parade anthology that we reviewed here. Um, also a very enjoyable story. A trampy woman that's an alcoholic hooks up with a drug addict gotta love a story with a trampy woman gotta, yeah absolutely <laughs> trampy uh, Kyle Miner's The Truth and All is Ugly we did not read for the podcast but he did actually read it at a reading that we recorded I just said the word read like seven times in a row um, so if you want to hear it in the author's own voice you can check out episode number 76 of Booked uh, the wrong kind of reading, where he—I think he doesn't—I don't think he does the whole story, but he does a good chunk of it. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, I think that's it for ones we've read before, right? I know I read *Rust and Bone* from Craig Davidson, but apparently um, we had to take a little break to research where that might have been, and I have no answer. No, we're just gonna have to ask him. Where yeah, did Libius we'll read this? Yeah. Hey, where did I read this before? <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, like I said, sadly, I think those those stories get hurt a little bit. <laughs> They do. We're talking yeah. about standout stories. We're like, nah, we already talked about this. So, give yeah, some I mean, new stories. The so, listeners so. know our mental process, right? They know what we've read, and they know that's why we're not talking about it, right? They just know that? Yes, of course. The good ones do. The g- <laughs> a. Adam Otten knows. Yeah, of course he does. Dude, that guy knows more about us than we do. He really does. Yeah. You can see him peeking through my window right now. Um, Rob also made a note here that uh, there were lots of female authors, and um, I, I don't know that I really thought that while I was reading it, but um, considering the genre, and we've had this conversation before um, about how few women um, <laughs> appear in these types of collections, like the book anthology. <laughs> um, Rob, mathematician that he is, came up with 35% of these stories are written by women. Where only less than 20% were mentioned in our top picks. <laughs> <laughs> so we're keeping our streak. Yeah, we're uh, dis- disproportionate there. So, um, <laughs> so interior design. Rob, you had some some comments about that. We we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, anybody who has seen the print copy of the book, it's got a lot of flair inside of it. Um, it, and almost to the point where I didn't really. That's one of the things I didn't like. I've already talked a little bit about. Uh, the fonts that were used, the you know, the font for the book is a is a pretty standard, like sans serif font. But uh, no, it's a serif font. I sound like a fool. But there's this um, there's a second font that is the font that the the table of contents is done in, and then some of the elements throughout the book are done in. And it's just really, it's more of like a, it's one of the kind of fonts you want to use just like for titles, very small words. You only have to read really quickly, not like something you're reading an extensive amount of text in so for me that was a little bit obtrusive and then every page has um i guess i would kind of call it like looks like splattered ink in the upper left hand corner like your tattoo uh yeah you know what hey now that you mention that (laughs) i think i've got i think i've got a case against these guys i'm gonna sue dark house thomas owes you yeah thomas owes you 10 percent of all book sales that son of a bitch he does um and i guess that's fine but at the same time it's not something that really adds to the book so i don't know it's kind of on the fence about that the one thing i did enjoy though was what livius apparently didn't even realize existed um there's an an image that um starts out each story and it's um thematic to to the story or the title of the story each of those images um is pretty cool and the illustrations are done by L.A. Spooner. I don't know if that's a man or a woman, but pretty good with the illustrations. I really dug them. 
I've, I've been looking at some of them. Are they just like really small above the title, or are they like their own page? In the... No, so every title, uh, typically in a story, you'll have like a blank left page, and the title is on the right page at the top. Basically, on this, instead of a blank left page, the title of the story and the image in, takes up the whole left page, and then the story starts at the top of the right page. So every story spread starts with a with the image and the title on the left hand side. It looks pretty cool. Um, when you said that, I went to Dredge, and it's a freezer, like one of those chest freezers. Yep, fantastic, right? <laughs> Awesome. They're, they're, so they're nice to revisit after the fact too, like because mm-hmm. yep. like once you get through the whole story, you might get more out of it. The wind eye one is a, is a window. Yeah. Good stuff. Very cool. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap this bad boy up? I don't know. The only other thing that really stuck out to me was how many stories had family involved, and I'm not like talking about. I mean, pretty much every character you could ever write has a family but this is something that's more prominent where um the conflict is between parents and and children siblings you know there's a father and their kids there's you know uh, a wife and and the husband there's 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 a a strong family element throughout and um I, i did a quick the statistician that i am i did a quick uh calculation um, just based on my, you know, memory of reading the stories, and I'd say at least seventy-five percent of the stories have a very family feel to them. So, um, I know that the list of stories was essentially curated by Richard Thomas. In addition to being the editor, he's the one that pulled all of the stories together. So, I don't know if this was a conscious act on his part, but there's a strong family element throughout almost all of the stories, or like a, a, an overwhelming majority of them. Um, it's funny because when I read that, I was like, really? Only 75%? <laughs> like, I had to go back and pick <laughs> out a couple, and I was like, oh, yeah, that doesn't really have a family thing in there. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and I think that, you know, and some of that, you know, maybe we're heading into kind of wrap-up territory, but, you know, some of that, I think, um, lends itself to more emotion. Um, just having a family element as opposed to just strangers doing shit to each other, or, or you know what I mean? Kind of a... Mm-hmm. Um, an easier way to tug on the heartstrings or to creep you out or, you know, whatever it is that the story's goal ultimately is. Well, it was enough where I started thinking to myself, so is neo-noir just a bunch of, like, dark shit that happens to families or is this coincidental? <laughs> I don't know. If only we knew a neo-noir expert we could ask. Yeah. We'll have to, uh, next time we're hanging out with Richard Thomas at the Buffalo Wild Wings, we'll have to ambush him with that question. Assuming he doesn't actually just listen to this episode and answer it. <laughs> no, he's not going to listen to this episode, so we'll totally be able to ambush him with this. It'll Good. be awesome. And I think maybe we should record that when we do it. And, and, and like a secret recording? Yeah, oh, yeah like, absolutely. Or like Bill O'Reilly style where he just sends like a camera crew to ambush someone and, and like harass <laughs> them? Just, <laughs> just someone like pushing their way past Richard's wife in the doorway. <laughs> like, Richard, we're here to ask you about neo-noir. This big bookshelf oh, behind him, a bunch of Stephen King books. We, uh, I guess that uh, people who are involved with this show should be happy that we don't do video because that is totally the kind of thing we do. We'd send, a, we'd send an A. Adam Otten or a Malik Tambali <laughs> with a camera. <laughs> to, uh, wait until we have our own late night talk show. We'll be those people asking people questions in the street that don't make any sense. It will happen eventually. That will happen. Mm-hmm. You ready to wrap this up? Yeah, why don't you get it... You know, I'm going to get it started. How's that? All right. Let's get this party started. (laughs) All right. Um, I don't think it's any secret that we um, have had a long relationship with Richard Thomas, so it was kind of a no-brainer that when he started a new press and announced that there was going to be an anthology of what he basically considered the best of the best of of, um, already published uh, writing in the neo-noir um, kind of dark fiction genre, subgenre, whatever. I'm not going to go into trying to figure out what the hell all that means. And it's kind of a no-brainer that we were going to read it and review it. So, um, And really, it, it's a strong collection. Um, there's some stuff that we've seen before and we had already talked greatly about, and there's just a ton of authors that we've grown to respect and admire over the course of doing this podcast. Um, much like most anthologies, except for obviously the main exception to this rule would be the booked anthology 
not every story is for everyone. So there were some stories that I wasn't as crazy about as others. Um, but overall, I, I thought it was a pretty strong collection. Uh, it had a very strong uh, family element to it, which to me, I wasn't really that excited about, but it didn't take too much away from it, from my personal experience. And a heavy presence for female writers, which um, I know Richard is, is a champion of. I'm just happy to see that there was so much good writing available from from female writers and he and that and that he did what he could to get their names in front of in front of more people basically so um all that is to say um i liked a lot of it some of it obviously wasn't for me and some of the divine design elements i think were a little bit over the top but nothing that did anything to kind of screw up the book or anything like that so overall i dug it i'm gonna do three and a half stars all right. Um, you know, what else is there to say? I didn't have enough time to mention um, some of the other stories that I really liked. It's uh, it's weird because as you're kind of reading through them, you know, like I make notes on all of them. And then, you know, I, I don't review those notes until we're basically doing the podcast. So as I'm looking at the list, um, some other great stories in there. Benjamin Percy, this great story um, called Dial Tone. Um, Paul Tremblay. Uh, another friend of the show with a great story in there. It's against the law to feed the ducks, um, which was terrific. Uh, much like Rob, there are a couple that kind of uh, escaped me a little bit. There's a couple of the stories that left me scratching my head. But again, um, no surprise to listeners here that I don't quite get all of it all the time. Um, <laughs> so just not that sharp sometimes. So, um, But yeah, overall, it was, a, it was a very nice sampling of dark fiction. Uh, I can't just say neo-noir, and I can't just say noir, because noir has a definite um, feel to it that I don't think all of these stories did. That's why I think kind of that, that new black, you know, neo-noir title, I think does encompass all of this. I mean, there are not a lot of shiny, happy moments in, in these stories. As a matter of fact, I think there is zero um, throughout the book. Um, lots of good stuff, lots of interesting stuff, even some horror, which really surprised me a little bit as we kind of talked about, you know, Evanson and, and, and Wallworks, some um, contributions to this um, collection. Um, but overall, I mean, I, I enjoyed it uh, far, f- enjoyed, um, how do I say this? There are more stories I enjoyed a lot than there were stories I didn't get. So um, I'm going to go with four stars on this one. There you have it. Our first Dark House Press review. A lot, little rapey, right? Little rapey, um, and I was thinking about this when you were doing your wrap up, and I don't know if I'm gonna, I don't know if this is gonna come out the right way, but I don't think we've read the. I think I don't think anybody's been able to write strippers as well as Matthew McBride. <laughs> this this is what you were thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about strippers. Because God damn it, he can write some really entertaining strippers. Yeah, yeah, that's. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure. What These are just sad meant. strippers. There were some strippers in the book, and it was just sad, and like they weren't funny or like you know entertaining strippers like Matthew McBride's strippers. Is all I'm th- that's all I'm saying. Dude, Antonia Crane though, like half of that stuff is, uh, um, like autobiographical. She was like a sex industry worker. Oh, she was a sex worker. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean... God, I hope she was, because if not, that's going to be really bad. I'm pretty sure that she... (laughs) Well, of all people, she should have, like, the most entertaining stripper stories, and that's even more disappointing if you think about it. Yeah, I guess that's that's true. Oh, the things I wind up Googling. (laughs) Hold on. Hold on a second. You just you accused this whole thing. I don't. I don't know. I don't know how offensive all you of this is. You just accused the writer of being a sex worker. <laughs> uh, That's got to be a first for the podcast. Uh, let's see. Antonia Crane talks about sex work, slut shaming, and biting something. Huffington Post. Okay. Uh, she bit Matthew McConaughey. I guess I have no idea what what that happened here. But I did not just. <laughs> incorrectly referred to a writer as a sex worker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I brought up the strippers. All right. Speaking of sex workers, uh, Malik Tambali um, of Words I View fame um, has uh, sent in their second installment. How is he a sex worker? <laughs> I, I don't know. I have no idea. Right. That's just how sometimes you have to segue things on this show. Sure. All right. <laughs> well, let's roll it then.
Hello, and welcome to Words Eye View on public radio broadcasting, where we look at the world of books through the eye of words. I'm your host, Malik Tumbali, and this week we will be crawling on our hands and knees in search for clues in Kafka's Metamorphosis. In Kafka's most famous work, The Metamorphosis, the main character, Gregor, has been changed or metamorphosized into what can only be described as a giant verminous bug. His family struggles with his new shape, as does he with his own physical and emotional metamorphosis. Here is an excerpt. Sometimes he thought that the next time the door opened he would take charge of the family's affairs again, just as he had done in the old days. At other times, he was in no mood to worry about his family. He was completely filled with rage at his miserable treatment, and although he could not imagine anything that would pique his appetite, he still made plans for getting into the pantry to take what was coming to him. Is Kafka trying to discuss the isolation of modern life, the absurdity of life itself, the coincidence of family, or is he instead telling a very real story of a man who was actually turned into a bug? We took your tweets for the answer. At Borvidal quoted, Totes a bug, bro. At Jillian F. stated, It was about abandonment, isolation, and finding a new teenage love. At J.D. Salad Spinner irreverently said he was probably just bored because the airplane didn't have Wi-Fi. And now the New York Times bestsellers and fiction seafood pairings for the week. The nuttiness of Maeve Binchy's Chestnut Street pairs best with halibut. Nora Roberts, the collector, requires a king crab to collect its nuanced flavor. Enjoy a lobster tail with Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch. Greg Isle's new book, Natchez Burning, lights your mind on fire with Shrimp Diabolo. Finally, The Target by David Baldacci hits the spot best with a double filet fish Thank you for opening your eyes with me, Malik Tumbali, and Words Eye View. Coming up next after booked on public radio broadcasting is Urban Perspectives, a white suburban roundtable of inner-city issues. PBR. All right, I'm not clear on what half that stuff that guy says is, but goddammit, it's funny stuff. All right, have you read The Metamorphosis? No, I have not. Livius. But, what? All right. No, dude. But here's what I thought about. I read a book called Cockroach, which was kind of a reverse of the metamorph- metamorph- metamorphosis book, which I just have to imagine it's much better. It's by Tyler Knox. Um, probably came out in 2007. Uh, and it's about a cockroach that turns into a human. Uh, weren't you and Caleb talking about this when we... Uh, I think it was the Invisible Monsters Remix review. It could be. I talk about it every chance I get. The book was goddamn fantastic. <laughs> um, similarly, uh, I haven't talked about this author in a while. Uh, Victor Pelvin, I think his name is, had a book called The Life Life of uh, The Life of Insects. I think is what mm-hmm. it was called. Yep. Where um, a, a very similar, very reality bending type of story where people transform into insects and insects transform into people and it's really really weird yeah so but I did read so, The Metamorphosis and was it good? Um, it was really interesting um, okay. I was kind of on a on a like a classic kick at the time and I read that mm-hmm. and I read like The Stranger and all that other kind of stuff got it out of my system <laughs> <laughs> um, but I did like other stuff by Kafka better like uh I think there's one called The Hunger Artist. is one of the most like interesting sto- short stories I've ever read about a guy who, like, his profession was starving himself. Huh. 
actually yeah. sounds kind of interesting. I know, right? You know, talk about this Tyler Knox guy. It's the only book he's ever written. <laughs> Apparently, that did not take off like he had hoped. <laughs> or he turned into a cockroach. cockroach. Could be. Dude, the most interesting thing about that is that we're seeing the world through the eyes of a cockroach who's human. And it's like a cockroach trying to figure out all these weird things that people do. Do you follow what I'm saying? So he's living by his cockroach standards. Right. And, and and just being constantly amazed at how like people act. I gotta say, that does sound far more interesting than a metamorphosis. And having read that, I think I should read this as well, but I probably will never have a chance to. No, no. We're done reading books that aren't for the podcast. Seriously. The sad reality. It is. So, uh, alright. I didn't get a chance to read this, but apparently there's a New York Times article that's uh, upsetting the... Um, the, the publishing world. Yeah, how do we pronounce that? Is it Hatchette? Hachette? Yeah, I think I looked this up for a while ago. Yeah, Hachetti. We've had this problem before. <laughs> one of the... Yeah. <laughs> Hatchetti. The yeah, Hatchetti listen, publisher. It's one it of like the top a, five. Like a, pronounce it like that movie, the Machete. Machete. <laughs> yeah, which is with an H. Just in a very Hispanic Hachete. <laughs> um, all right, so a major publisher, one of the top five, Hachete. Um, I guess um, in the <laughs> that's how I'm going to say it for now on because it's so wonderful. Um, they had some problems in their negotiations with Amazon about prices and licensing and whatever it happened to be. And so um, what it, what is being kind of interpreted as retaliation from Amazon, Amazon is, is basically fucking <laughs> a bunch of the authors from Hachete um, by listing their books as not being available for two to three weeks, um, not discounting the books as much as they are discounting books from other um, publishers. And so basically they'll have jacked up prices for this author and they'll throw up a banner that says, these are similar books by other authors that are less expensive. Um, So (laughs) I'm assuming because Hachete didn't do what uh, Amazon wanted as far as pricing and, and, and stuff like that. Amazon's basically doing everything they can to get um, buyers to buy other books or not buy the books that that they you know from that publisher. All right, look, here's the deal. We learned our lesson the hard way, right? Can't beat them. Listen, join them. Yeah, listen here, Hachete. <laughs> what you need to do is just do what they tell you to do. Because we tried to put out the book anthology. Print on demand through Lightning Source, the exact same thing happened. We were getting email after email. Dude, I want to order your book. It says two to three weeks. Blah, blah, blah. Just just do it. This is it. This is the way we're heading, Amazon. You can fight it if you want. Sure, put your book on Barnes and Noble. Lots of people will get it from there. Frank Edler. Frank Edler from from uh, Books Beer and Bullshit, he'll buy your book. But that's it, because that's the only Nook user in the whole world. It's true. Everybody else uses Amazon. So Hachete, um, enjoy your one book sale. Um, on Barnes and Noble, or just do do what you got to do. And I'm not supporting Amazon at all. I'm just being realistic. You cannot, and, and I imagine this is gonna, you know, just just bring up a shitstorm of of controversy. But look, either you're successful through Amazon or you're not successful at all. And, and I'm sure that there are people who could counter that and say, you know what, I sold a lot of books through such and such direct mail through um, uh, what's that other one? What's the where you can buy books through? There's Amazon. Um, Barnes and Noble, and there's that other one. What the hell is it called? I can't oh, think of what it's called. It's Smashwords? Smashwords, yeah. I'm sure there are people who have made lots of money through Smashwords. Which is the like the dollar store is, of, of places to get books. Yeah. yeah. If you want to be successful, um, just just suck it up and do what Amazon tells you to do. Um, sadly, it's true. I guess the article said that Amazon accounts for something like 35% of all book sales. Um. Which to me that that seemed low, but um, yeah, I thought the same thing when you said that. <laughs> really? But essentially, what that means is like no major publisher can um, hope to be competitive without having the resources of Amazon, um, which is is a sad reality, but it is a reality, and um, it's something that uh, especially companies like small presses can't can't uh, who don't have their own distribution and are using print on demand and everything have no choice but to um, like Broken River Books this has been something that they've been going through they're basically going through exactly what we went through where they are using Lightning Source and even though they're seeing regular revenue 
their books are regularly being listed at, you know, not available for one to three weeks. And so um, it, it's affecting sales. They're getting, you know, a lot of people contacting them, asking why their book's not in stock and all that stuff. And it's because the way Amazon de- treats Lightning Source, um, they basically cut them out because Lightning Source is direct competition to create space, which is owned by Amazon. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a sad reality, but it is very much a reality. Can we talk about the most disturbing thing in this um, in this article? Who the hell is Malcolm Gladwell, and why doesn't he get a haircut? You know who Malcolm Gladwell is? No. He did the Outliers, the Ten Thousand Hours. You're an expert thing. Oh, um, I've heard of that, but that was I thought that was um, the, the four hour work week guy, <laughs> Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss. No. <laughs> Who does? Who does get his haircut regularly and doesn't look fucking crazy like this Malcolm Gladwell guy? Oh, that's probably why. Amazon saw Malcolm Gladwell's haircut and they're like, nope. He is cut off. Yeah. All right. Well, so at any rate, if any of our, if any booked anthology alumnus are uh, planning on signing a deal with Hachete, um, I would suggest you don't. Yeah. Or, and don't co-author any books with Malcolm Gladwell. No, because the guy looks creepy. Get a haircut, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, all right. Speaking of haircuts, David James Keaton. I don't know. It just, just, it's a terrible transition night tonight. <laughs> guy who doesn't have to get haircuts, David James Keaton. What do you, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, he has, he has very nice, close-cropped hair. Uh, <laughs> a while back, we did a record, uh, recorded a reading. Um, one we mentioned earlier with Kyle Miner, uh, uh, David James Keaton was there as well, reading from what at that time was Tap 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 from Uncle B's Drive-In Fiction, um, which is now part of what used to be Spunk Water, but is going out coming out as the last projector later this summer. I like that I can say later this summer because like it's practically summer. It is practically summer, and we're in a tropical thunderstorm right now. I don't know if listeners could hear it on my end, but I've been being pelted here for an hour for the the storm. At any rate, it has nothing to do with David James Keaton. I'm not holding him responsible or anything. <laughs> well, one of my favorite episodes of, of Booked is episode number 75, where he reads Tap, Tap, Tap. And it is getting, um, not repackaged, but it's getting a second shot at a new audience because it's going to be a new episode up at Crime Wave. Uh, you know that we've been co-hosting. Uh, we took over the hosting duties uh, at Crime Wave. Um, uh, for This is our second episode now with them. and um, So that'll be dropping soon. We're going to be letting you know when that's out so you can get another shot at uh, some hilarious David James Keaton reading. Yeah, that guy just doesn't disappoint, man. He is he is the most entertaining author I, I read on a fairly regular basis every time I get my hands on one of his stories. Um, and he's the most entertaining person I follow on Facebook, too. What did he do? Uh, he's talking about the guy that was pounding on the window across the street or whatever? Yes, yes. Yep. <laughs> How that is not already um, in its third revision as a short story by David James Keaton is absolutely beyond me. That's the thing. When you're friends with Keaton on Facebook... Um, you have to remember like these little moments to see if they should make up make it into in, into books like uh, him finding a cat in the winter. I'm gonna see if that's mm-hmm. in the last projector. Well, if it if it wasn't already, there's a good chance it will be. <laughs> it, it will be. Yeah. <laughs> so, any rate, that'll be up soon um, for your listening pleasure. Um, and then that's it. We're done, Bob, with books, right? Let's talk about TV. There's a lot of stuff going on in TV right now, dude. Can I ask you a question? Did you ever read any of the Hannibal books? No, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, see, I read all of them. Yeah, I'm at a disadvantage. And I'm the one that's super rabid about the TV show right now. You are. Um, it just got picked up for a third season, which is very cool. And what makes that even cooler is my understanding, and I got this information from you a couple weeks ago, season three will be Manhunter, right? The book, Manhunter? You are incorrect. So, oh, the Red Dragon. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Manhunter was the crappy movie made from. Yeah, <laughs> with the guy from CSI. Um, yes. Actually, uh, the first three seasons are intended to be original material, and then the fourth season would gotcha. go into um, canon. The actual books, um, you know, Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs, and Hannibal. Gotcha. So cool. Very cool. But uh, that's exciting because. Um, 
if for some reason they don't make it to a fourth season, at the very least we got those three seasons of promised original content that lead right up to um, the point where we're into Red Dragon, which is um, at the very least what I would I would hope for. I uh, I gotta say that you know I did a little bit of reading on it before it got picked up for its third season, and, and the the viewership is pretty goddamn terrible for for a show like this. Uh, I haven't really been paying attention to what the audience is like. How like how bad is it? I, I don't remember. There were some questions on if it was even going to get renewed because of how terrible the the um, the ratings were. Um, by ratings, I mean viewership. That's also called ratings, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, I did see something that said that like the average viewer though was like forty eight years old, so it's a little older crowd. But I think that may have to do with the fact that it does debut on. Fr- I watch it on DVR, but that's Friday nights, right? Yeah, I think it's and that's like the death slot. Um, yeah, I don't know, but like the, it's one of those shows where like it, it, even if it has a small viewership, it seems so huge because the people that like it like it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they put they put Dracula in that same time slot, which I wound up really enjoying. I only watched it after the season one was complete. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in that same time slot, and then they were like, "Well, we don't know if we want to review it. There's not a lot of viewers." So I think that in some cases, uh, maybe they're looking at Hulu and Netflix um, before they make decisions to see if there's a you know a ton of viewership on there. So I hope so. I mean, their their marketing presence is is not bad. Like, there's a huge. There's a lot of activity on Twitter, um, and I've seen ads for it and, and lots of like coverage. The Onion, I found this out really a co-worker told me recently. Her name's Denise. I'm going to give her props. I know she doesn't listen, but I'm saying her name anyway. Um, <laughs> just so I can tell that later and sound like a cool guy, you know, that like mentions my co-workers my name. Mm-hmm. Um, she told me, and I, and, and I have to go back and reread, every episode of season two, the show creator has done uh, an interview with um, The Onion AV Club, I guess it's TV Club for the television stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, talking about the episode that just aired, and you know, getting interviewed about why they chose to do this and stuff. So, I read a couple of them, and they're like really interesting. So, there's enough marketing and and kind of just a general swell of interest around it. So, I I would hope I would ex- I was expecting it to have a bigger uh, viewership than maybe it actually has. All right, so. Um <laughs> wow. So I pulled up this past week, so the May 9th um, ratings. So uh, 18 to 49.7 um, is, is the viewership for Hannibal. Uh, the total viewers in millions, 1.95 in the 10 o'clock slot. Mm. Um, 1.95 million, which seems like a lot. Goddamn Blue Bloods with Magnum PI, 11.7 million. <laughs> And 2020, 6.3 million. So, I mean, you're sucking oh, high tech slaughtered. NBC by a lot. Well, that's, and that's, I read some stuff where they were like, you know, the show, the it's getting critical, good critical reviews, but the ratings are shit. And that's why a lot of people were kind of surprised when it was renewed. So it must be backdoor, you know, Hulu deals that are, you know, that type of thing that's making this, <laughs> this happen. But dude, that's terrible. 10 times, oh, I'm sorry, not 10 times, almost now is that uh, eight times as many people are watching Tom Selleck in Blue Bloods. Oh, Christ. That guy. That's horrible. There's got to be... That, here's the problem with current entertainment, and I don't want to go on a huge rant, but, like, um, the the ratings for, you know, um, what, like, actual television airing are, are still the majority of, of how they measure the success of, of a show. And, I mean, and that's really limiting the viewership because there's so many people I know... There's a there's a there's a contingency of people in the world who just have abandoned the idea of watching TV on cable, and they watch everything just on the internet. So um, I don't know. I, I don't think it's a realistic uh, approximation of what the actual audience is. It's kind of sad. Yeah, I would have to agree. But to be fair, like I said, I mean that is across the board. So Blue Bloods gets the same aftermarket care i would imagine that a show like hannibal does probably yeah. less purchasable like in dvd like i've been and maybe i'm wrong because i really didn't think i'll be honest i'm looking at the friday night lineup and cbs wins at every single category or uh, for every single time slot and i'm, I'm shocked that people watch cbs altogether. <laughs> do, you, do you want to know why i was actually going to mention this cbs mm-hmm. has a horrible web presence 
they 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 make it next to impossible for their shows mm -hmm. to be viewed online versus being viewed on on their actual on their network. So I think that they get an advantage by virtue of the fact that they're horrible at making anything available online, which kind of sucks. Show, the only show I watch from CBS is Elementary, which is excellent. Ooh, is it excellent, really? Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Dude, Zero Cool plays Sherlock Holmes. Come on. Yeah. How do, how do you get that. any better than that? Yeah. <laughs> so, it's like, that dude played with Angelina Jolie's boobs. Yeah, yeah. For the, I think they were an actual couple too for a while. Oh, nice! Not even on camera, yeah. off-camera yes. boobs. Yeah, well, it might. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there was a camera involved. Who knows? At any rate, I think we've we've moved off the, the uh, our standard formatting here. Um, but expect to hear more Hannibal talk um, after the season wraps up, as we will be joining our friends at This Is Horror for a uh, I don't know Hannibal episode, I guess can't tell you how excited I am about Hannibal. Um, I've written a couple columns specifically about Hannibal in that uh, Dead Pixels column I do for This Is Horror. And um, yeah, I just I talk about it all the time. There's several people I work with. Uh, this dude, Phil. Uh, anybody who's Facebook friends with me will see a guy named Phil. Every night right after the <laughs> the episode airs, just will post DUDE in all capitals on my on my wall. That's his reaction to the latest uh, Hannibal episode. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to like more, you know, have a deep conversation on the record about it. Good. Can we talk about dream sequences and hallucinations? Because I've got at least an hour I could throw in about that. Absolutely. Dude, okay. all right, before we get off the TV thing, can I talk about, there was two shows I discovered tonight. Sure. Did you know there's a show coming up called Gotham? Yes. And it's like the childhood of all of the Batman characters, basically? Yes, and you want to know why I knew this, huh. and I knew about this a long time ago. The guy who plays the young Commissioner Gordon, yeah, he's from one of the greatest TV shows of all time. Uh oh, Vampire Diaries. He's from the OC. <laughs> Never watched the OC in my life. Yeah, he was also on some cop show. Apparently, he's better known for. But yes, Gotham um, is going to be premiering this summer. Young Commissioner Gordon, a very young Bruce Wayne, so it it, it kind of takes the the path that um, um, Gordon as a as a rookie detective, I guess, mm -hmm. um, is the one who investigates the murder of Bruce Wayne's parents, and uh, it, it's going to have appearances from young versions of um, Catwoman, <clears throat> Poison Ivy, Penguin. Um, there's talk that they're you know maybe in a second season the Joker. There's a Riddler character as well. Yep. So uh, it looks pretty interesting. There's an extended two and a half minute trailer you can find on YouTube. Um, if you didn't see it during the 24 premiere, 24 has returned to television, um, which is even more awesome than Gotham. Sorry, but uh, or more exciting than Gotham that Jack Bauer has returned to TV for 12 episodes. I have a ja um, I have a 24 story actually. Oh, let's see. Let's hear a 24 story. I'm at work the other day and. Um, <laughs> We have this kind of whiteboard that's just got a list of upcoming significant dates, things that are happening, new initiatives, and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I see, um, I think it was May 5th, right, the new episode? Yes. So I see on the board, it's like 5-1, this is happening, 5-3, this is happening. 5-5, it just says Jack is back, and then like 5-whatever, like, you know, so it was just kind of in there. <laughs> and and I called over our, our, our system, like, you know, the walkie-talkies, I said... What? Who's Jack? Why does it oh. say Jack is back on May fifth? Immediately, someone's like Jack Bauer. I was like, Oh my god! Uh, I feel so had. What's the second show you you discovered? Um, Constantine. Did you hear about this? Yeah, I. Yes, I heard about it. Are you kidding? I'm friends with Bob Pastorella on, on Facebook. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> the only thing he ever posts about is Constantine. Um. I did not watch the trailer. There's actually a trailer for that, too, apparently, over at io9, and I've not seen it yet. But uh, Constantine movie was okay. The movie was, um, you know, Keanu Reeves, whatever. The movie was actually good. Um, the TV show, I have my doubts about. Um, it's got a very British guy playing John Constantine, and I don't know if that's, like, tradition, if that matches up with what, you know, because it's based on a comic book, right? Mm -hmm called hell yep. something or other or fire something i don't know um, hell something or fire something 
Um, but yeah, the dude's very British and, and, you know, thankfully not very much like Keanu Reeves, but, um, at the same time, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I, it, it's, I don't know if it's winning me over. I might have to catch a few episodes before I make a, a decision on that, but that was something that just kind of popped up out of nowhere. Yeah, it's going to be... Uh, TV is headed in a very interesting... Hellblazer, by the way. Yeah, of course. Sorry. Hellfire. <laughs> Blaze. Hellblazer. I should have thought of, like, you know, like a overcoat. Anyway, not an overcoat, but anyway, go on. Sport coat. <laughs> oh, man, this just gets better. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of interesting things, either in development or on its way, and, and TV is, is taking a change, and, I mean, obviously we owe some of that to shows like The Walking Dead and... Um, and The Walking Dead. <laughs> I think there's maybe, a show called The Walking Dead that had a lot to do with it. And maybe The Walking Dead. Dude, there's going to be a Friday the a Friday the 13th kind of reboot. What? Um, is something that's in development right now. And it's going to touch on Jason's like extended family throughout the centuries or something. Like this crazy shit going on. Get out of here. That but sounds the, awesome. And yeah. awful at the same time. It's going to be on the CW, so you have to oh. imagine that it's going to be like a teen romance <laughs> Friday the 13th. I don't know. I think it's the CW. I don't remember. Jason you know, we gets didn't a time talk machine about. and travels yeah. through time beating people against and makes trees. And out, makes out with different chicks, like different teenage girls like throughout time. It's going to be awesome. You know, we didn't talk about, and, and I know that we're running a little long here, but uh, I can't imagine that listeners of this show are not um, already uh, in the know about Chuck Wendig. Oh yeah, and Miriam Black may be coming to Stars. It's in development. Stars, which also had one of the greatest series ever, Spartacus. So, <laughs> Just don't if it's on Stars, that. if it's on Stars, dude, it's going to be lots of group sex and lots of violence because that's what all Stars shows are. If, I thought you said lots of islands for a second, not violence. I was like, why would they have a lot of islands? <laughs> Very confused, but that makes a lot more sense. Sex and violence. Um, like Penny Dreadful was uh, was promising, and there wasn't so much in the first episode, but I'm looking forward to seeing more sex and violence out of that. Oh, just wait until we have our TV show podcast. Oh, God, we're just going to bore the shit out of everybody. That's all right. No one's listening at this point. We talk about whatever we want. That's right. All right. Before we leave, let me give you a little teaser about next week's episode. This has been 40 years in the making. Since I read the first book I ever read when I was like one, I've been anxiously awaiting a fiction novel from Rick Springfield. It is upon us. There is no Ma- more avoiding it. Magnificent <laughs> Vibrations is our next review. Um, we'll be back with that in a week or so <laughs> if Rob can get through it that quickly. All like 300 pages of it. Yeah. Um, if not, then maybe in two weeks. But uh, definitely come back. We're going to be talking Rick Springfield. There might be singing involved. We might have to bring back theme music just for that episode. It's going to be a, it's going to be a wild one. It better be a wild one. <laughs> All right. Until next time, I am Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. Female masturbation, 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 masturbation.